Hi, this is Chad, and this is Product Mastery Now. You may know this as the Everyday Innovator podcast, but after seven years of interviews, I've changed the name to better reflect our mission, which is to help you become a product master, creating products that customers love. In the future, look for Product Mastery Now in your podcast player or find all of the episodes and detailed show notes at productmasterynow.com. Our guest today is a 30-plus-year innovation and technology journalist. He has authored several books on innovation and is also the CEO and co-founder of Innovation Leader, which helps change makers at large organizations deliver real impact. He'll share the challenges innovation leaders are facing and how we can overcome them. If you want a detailed summary of everything we talk about, along with a one-page action guide to help you put into action the key concepts we discuss, just go to productmasterynow.com slash 339. Now, let's talk with Scott. Scott, I'm very excited for you to be part of our podcast. I'm excited to be on the podcast. I think listeners will enjoy this. You have some good insights about organizational innovation. And as product managers, we are always concerned about actually providing new value for for our customers. So innovating is key. And you're involved in some really interesting things that I've come across in the past and so glad to get connected with you. Um, first, there's the Innovation Answered podcast that I've listened to before with Caitlin Milligan. And she's an amazing podcast host. I listen to it sometimes. I'm very yep. infrequently on it, but uh, so I'm more of a listener than a, than a guest on her great podcast. Yeah, I actually looked up her bio when I first started listening to it because I thought she did such a good job producing that. Uh, I wanted to see what her background was like to, to be able to do that. Let's not um, let her listen to this podcast, though. Her head is going to be... <laughs> But she might have some tips for us to make this better, too. Who knows? She definitely always has tips for me. That's for sure. You also co-founded a resource we'll talk more about in a bit called uh, Innovation Leader. Um, Very useful for providing data and research to organizations about innovation and how we can do a better job with that. Consequently, a lot about this changing role of leading innovation in organizations, which I really want to spend our time focused on. And then uh, we'll talk about some resources you have uh, that you can share with us later. To get us kicked off, though, I, I thought maybe you might address for us some of the obstacles that organizations continue to deal with. And I don't know if these have particularly changed with the, the COVID that we've been going through, but I, I've always found in organizations some nature of corporate antibodies that kind of limit innovation. What, what, what has your research led you to in terms of those obstacles? Well, you know, I always like metaphors and I, I love people who do innovation inside big companies like your listeners. And so one of the metaphors I often use is big companies are designed to be aircraft carriers. You know, they're so process oriented and safety oriented and quality, you know, you just want everything to to work perfectly. And so if you're trying to make anything new happen, whether you're a product manager, you're an R&D, you have innovation in your title or new technologies, whatever it may be, you have that feeling of they're asking us to design a new kind of aircraft, but we're here working inside this giant aircraft carrier that wants everything to be already perfect and safe and finished and reliable. And so when you ask people, and we've done this survey for a couple times now about what are the biggest obstacles to succeeding at innovation inside a big organization, and big is whatever you think it is. It could be 500 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, but you know, it's a company that's been around for a couple of years. The top three are politics and turf wars, right? So people on that aircraft carrier don't want you messing around. You know, my job is to make sure that I'm here in the air traffic control tower. I need to make sure the planes take off and land safely. Don't get into my way. The second thing is cultural issues. And so that that encompasses a lot, but it's like 
What does our brand represent to the customer? What is our heritage about? What do we think we're good at? And so anything you do that rubs against the grain of that culture or tries to do some origami and and make that culture into something different can be really challenging. And the third thing is about the inability to act on signals that are crucial to the future of the business. And so that's a mouthful, but basically like we see what the future is, we know what's changing, but we just can't act on it. And the thing I love about that third reason is that when you ask people about, do you know what are the signals uh, that are crucial to the future of your company? They say, yeah, that's actually not the challenge. We know what's changing. We know the customer wants something different. We know there are startups that are going to disrupt it. We just can't act on those signals. Mm -hmm. So those are the top three when we do a survey. And that's from a report that we call Benchmarking Innovation Impact 2020. Excellent. And I suspect listeners, as you were sharing those, the political and turf wars, cultural issues and inability act, were doing the same thing I was doing, which was thinking of examples, either of companies I've worked with or worked for, or other examples I know of each one of those, right? Like uh, the last one, a company I've worked <laughs> with, I won't mention, really has, has that, they know the signals, right? And they know they need help and they have for a long time, but they can't move forward. Kodak was such a great public example of having invented the digital camera and they, they could have figure out a way to incorporate it into their business model. Yeah, the Kodak example, I feel like you almost can't have a discussion about innovation with Kodak not coming up or without Kodak coming up or with Xerox Park coming up. Or there are lots of examples of companies that have had trouble acting on that future. And sometimes sometimes it's about, you know, investment and commitment level, right? Kodak had invented the digital camera and knew it was going to be part of the future, but maybe not being able to throw enough resources behind it. I think it's an interesting case study and maybe one we shouldn't go into in this podcast if you don't want right. to, because, you know, people people talk about what, what could Kodak have done differently? I mean, this was the future of photography, right? The iPhone or the smartphone. Right. And Kodak didn't invent that, right? So even if they had been the smartest people in the universe about how to get that digital camera to market, we all own digital cameras at one point, and most of us mm-hmm. don't use them anymore. So... Just kind of an interesting, I think, innovation cul-de-sac there. Yeah, there's been some good evolution for sure. There always is, both most of it from incremental innovation, but that occasionally disruptive, like the digital camera originally was. So those three obstacles, what I find sometimes in uh, organizations is the way people work around those is they just don't tell anyone what they're doing, right? They, they, They do an innovation project in secret. Uh, until it's too big for anyone to to you know ca- cause it not to happen. There's probably some better ways than that, but what do you think? Well, I we we call that like setting up an innovation skunk works, right? And there are some successful examples of companies that have set up innovation skunk works. You know, at Apple, the Macintosh project, you know, was built under the pirate flag when Steve Jobs was still there. That was truly a skunk works team working on that the original Lockheed Skunk Works that developed some of the fastest planes of the 20th century. And I would say like Amazon's Lab 126, the group that invented the Kindle e-reader and really helped Amazon go from being an e-commerce company to being a consumer electronics and hardware company was a successful Skunk Works. So you can find examples of success, but I think you find a lot of examples where someone says, we need to do something in secret with a group of really cool kids and we're going to be separate from the headquarters where they just don't have enough support from those headquarters executives. The strategy changes at headquarters and the the Skunk Works group is not really attuned to those changes. And so they're kind of off in their own orbit doing their own thing. And then when it's ready to launch into the market, 
no one at headquarters wants it anymore or cares about it. And then also just that distance can make things really, really challenging. If you're in, you know, if you have a skunk works that's, that's far from the headquarters, just people feel like you're not part of the same team. And so you right. better do something really amazing if you're going to do it that way. And you better make sure that the CEO or the chairman or the COO are on your side and are, are there ready when you have something to launch. I think one of the things you see companies doing that's much more successful is, is creating innovation networks, or sometimes people call them networks of champions or networks of catalysts, where it's like, whether you're in product management, R&D, innovation, you can't be seen as having ownership of all great ideas in the company and all innovation in the company. And so how can you find people in a global organization scattered all over the world in different functions, in different business units, who maybe you can help them build some innovation capability they can be sensing nodes for ideas or maybe changes that are happening with their customers in that particular market or with a particular demographic of customer. And when you build that kind of network where you can say, gee, I have a almost an army of 100 people in this company or 500 people, even better, who are part of what we're doing and contributing in some way, it becomes harder to kill. You know, it's harder to switch that off. Whereas the Skunkworks approach, it's easy to say, you know, we hired 50 people to work in that smart Silicon Valley skunk works with the cool furniture and the cold brew on tap, but let's stop paying the lease. Let's let those people go and we'll figure out how to innovate some other way. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, that last point is also true for some innovation leaders, right? So I've seen organizations bring in a chief innovation leader, try to move the company forward, maybe in some new markets or uh, new adjacent areas. And it appears like three to five years is kind of the sweet spot, at least so that I, I've observed, that they better start doing something worthwhile for the organization or that, that kind of capability might be going away. Let, let's talk about that role and just how innovation, leading innovation is changing in organizations and maybe kind of what those responsibilities look like of leading innovation. Okay. It's a lot of questions, Chad, yep. but I, hopefully you'll keep me honest and make sure that I answer all of them, right? So- <laughs> The role is incredibly challenging. If you have innovation in your role, that's kind of why we started Innovation Leader. It's such a hard role. If you look at the difference between startups and established companies, startups never need to put innovation or emerging technologies or new ventures in someone's title, right? Because everybody at that startup is coming to work to make something new happen and to be part of the team that's bringing something new to market. In more established companies, you know, once that startup grows up through its adolescence into adulthood and they start to have a culture and they know what they're good at and they have core products, that's where you sometimes need to have a group or a person who feels responsible for thinking about the future and talking to customers about the future and understanding how the technology stack is going to change in the future. And do we need to add services around these core products? And it's a really hard role because of those obstacles we talked about before. People are great at their jobs. They know what they're supposed to do. They have quarterly numbers to hit. And I just talked to an innovator this week who's been in the business for a long time. She used to work at MasterCard. She's now running innovation at a major airport in the US. She said, you know, every day I come to work, I feel like a troublemaker. I feel like an agitator, you know, because you are trying to disturb the status quo. You're saying something is happening with our customers or our markets or something is happening because there's a startup that just raised $100 million to take us on, and we just can't keep doing things the way we're doing them. And it makes, it, it makes 
these people feel like they're sometimes lone wolves inside the company. And it, it just is a really hard job. And I feel like you had two or three other questions in there that I didn't answer, Chad. Oh, we're, we're going to get into them. Thank you so much for teeing that up. So it, it is a very challenging role that this lone wolf kind of name to it, I think fits fits quite well. And the agitator, right? They're, they're, they are pushing against that established organization and people that don't want to break things because that's they've been they're, everything they know about business is to keep things running reliably. Can I try? I've been thinking about this metaphor because I love yeah. metaphors and I want to float it past you and see if you think this is a workable metaphor. Okay. Because part of the problem that these innovation folks deal with is at the C level and the board level, does this company really believe in having innovation as part of its DNA? And that that's going to be part of our DNA forever, not just for, as you said, three years or four years while we experiment with this new role or this new innovation lab or this you know, whatever the A team that you've put together to try to work on innovation. The metaphor I've been thinking about is if, if you think about us as human beings planning for our futures and thinking about when we retire, there's like three ways you might approach that, right? One way is I'm just going to work, work, work really hard and, and just do what I'm good at. And maybe at the retirement, I'll have a business that I can hand on to my son or daughter and they'll take it over and keep the business going. So it's like, just keep on doing it, work hard, and eventually probably good things will happen. Route number two is when you're a year away from retirement, you go to Las Vegas and you put all your money on number 22 on the roulette table and you hope that it'll pay off in one giant bold bet and that you'll have enough money to retire. And then option number three is you have a portfolio of investments and you start making them when you're 20 years old and you're at your first job and you stop making them when you're 60 years old or 62 years old when you're ready to retire. And it's a lot of different investments, you know, some real estate, some mutual funds, some bonds. And then when you, as you're watching it, it's building up and it's, you know, earning interest over time. And then when you retire, you kind of know what, what you have. I feel like that metaphor works for a lot of companies, right? Because they take one of those three paths. Either they say, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. We don't really believe in innovation, but crank the wheel harder, make people work harder, maybe do some incremental improvements and good things will happen at the end of the road. Or Route number two is we're going to make one really big bet on a new product or a new initiative, and the CEO thinks that she, he or she is going to enjoy all the glory of winning at the roulette table, New Coke being one good example of that. And then the third is like what I would argue is the most intelligent is actually you have a portfolio of innovations and different investments, and you're doing it over a long period of time, and that that's probably the highest likelihood of something good coming of all this innovation activity. Yeah, I like the metaphor, right? And it relates well to a lot of recent uh, literature we've seen in innovation, right? Including out of Alex Osterwalder, who did the business model canvas and kind of looking at that portfolio approach. I do think there are individuals that have a higher hist higher batting average when it comes to knowing where to put those bets. But none of us get it right all the time, right? The, the, the very best batters are, you know, bat batting 300 maybe, right? So, so having making bets in different places is really important because it's hard to know what is actually going to be a winner and having that portfolio approach is really important. And for medium, large organizations, this isn't particularly hard to do, right? You, you Maybe you take $10,000 in 10 different places and you do experiments and you, you know, end up with five that look promising and you carry them forward and you end up with two that look promising and, and maybe take them both to market, right? And see what happens. Yeah, I, I think that approach is just the one that's more likely to build muscles over time and just get people used to this idea that, you know, 
we believe in innovation and we're going to believe in it next year mm -hmm. and we're going to believe in it in five years. Because I do think sometimes companies do things intentionally or unintentionally that make people feel like this innovation thing is the flavor of the week. You know, like they'll have a right. big innovation conference, you know, and they'll bring in someone from Google to speak at the conference. And then the day after the conference, everybody's like, OK, you know, we had innovation day at our company and now we're back to the grind. Right. Or sometimes they'll do like an annual shark tank where it's like, OK, we want to hear everybody's ideas, but just on this one day. And, you know, after that, we don't actually have resources to keep developing these ideas. Right. There's a lot of stuff that happens, I think, that sends the message that this is a fad and this is a passing thing. And people in large organizations are really good at ignoring stuff that they think is a passing trend and, you know, mm -hmm. the CEO's pet idea of the week or of the quarter. Right. Yes. Steve Blank calls that innovation theater, right? You, yeah, I love that. I love that. Term. I love that phrase, right, too. Yeah. You're going through the steps, but you're not actually accomplishing anything. It just looks good. And I think the portfolio investment approach does help organizationally move the organization forward on this notion that we do need to be doing something new periodically, right? And even though, like, I, I believe there are some people that can make better bets than others, building it, those processes and into the structure kind of just makes it expected then. It does. And it, it and also just that portfolio approach, you know, it's very much the same way venture capitalists invest in startups, right? You know, as they say, if this giant pool of money and they know exactly how many startups they can back with that pool of money. Mm -hmm. And it's the pool of money does not go to just one startup and you hope that's going to be the next Airbnb or the next Amazon, right? It goes into lots of startups. They know that some of them are going to fail for lots of reasons. They try to make as many of them succeed as possible. And I think that in a lot of companies, when they see an experiment fail, they, they're like, okay, what we've learned from that experiment is that nothing good will ever happen in this space or with this technology. You know, like there, if you think about the first experiments with, I don't know, cloud computing, and maybe it wasn't as reliable as the chief information officer wanted it to be. It's like, oh no, we're never going to do cloud computing. We've tried it. It didn't work. I and mean, we, we've all seen how, how big companies they stub their toe once and it's like, okay, you know, from now on, I'm only going to sit in a wheelchair because when you're in a wheelchair, you never stub your toe. And like 30 years later, someone says, well, did we ever try to walk? And you're like, no, 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 that's not our culture. We don't do that. You might right. stub your toe. Yeah. So I, I think you need, need to keep this metaphor going, uh, put it to good use. <laughs> so I like it. Let's talk about leading innovation specifically. Maybe two years ago or so, we had uh, Mike Mitchell on, who's with the Center for Creative Leadership, and he had done some research on why do people leading innovation look different than others, right? What is it, what their actions are different? I'd like to know, you know, what's kind of involved in that role of leading innovation in a company, and specifically how you see it changing, because we've gone through these big changes in the last year with the pandemic and remote working. And I think some organizations actually have become much more innovative, maybe out of necessity. Some have just been more reflective on what they could be doing because they had the capability to. Others had to really pivot or they weren't going to be able to stay in business. So we have seen some really good things when it comes to innovation out of the change of a business environment. What are you seeing about leading, leading innovation now? It's a big question. I think that the first thing that people who do this need to do is figure out what kind of innovation the company wants them or the agency or the nonprofit wants them to be doing, right? And I think successful innovation leaders would probably say there's three different categories of innovation you could be doing, right? There's product service innovation, right? Offer, you know, the offering to our customers, one thing you could innovate on. A second thing is cultural innovation. And can we change the way it feels to work here? 
and potentially attract new, you know, new kinds of talent. Hey, we need to hire data viz people or data scientists or artificial intelligence people, and we can't hire them today. We know we need to adapt and evolve our culture. And so that's category number two. And category number three, I think, is more process, you know, internally focused. We know we need to get more efficient. We need to reinvent how we do um, task X, Y, or Z. And I think I oversimplify things. So there are probably more than three categories, but I think that successful innovation leaders know that you can't work on all three of those categories at once. It is a fool's errand. And so understanding, am I operating in just one of those categories? Or maybe you're operating in two of those categories, but don't try to spread yourself. Don't try to spread spread yourself too thin. And then the other thing that's really successful that successful innovators do, which is which is quite hard, is they're doing stuff in the near term, in the today that creates value for the organization, but they're also thinking about that midterm and long-term and how do I create value there? And so the today stuff can sometimes be helping the organization figure out how to hire new kinds of talent or helping the organization test new kinds of technology that it should be using. Or I don't know, another good example would be openness and creating, we sometimes talk about opening doors and windows. How do we actually do a better job of seeing what's changing with the customer in this remote world, you know, how do you do customer observation and insights and anthropology when our company used to be used to getting, you know, going out to, you know, a research center and having focus groups where you'd get 10 customers together in a room, like can't do that as well. So looking for those near-term opportunities, maybe it's prototyping faster than anybody else in the organization can do it. And sometimes you see groups who become the go-to place where it's like, if you have an idea and you want it prototyped, you go to Chad and his team and they will get it done for you in a month. Whereas other parts of the organization would say, oh, that's an 18 month process. So you're balancing that near-term value without forgetting that, hey, the job of innovation is really about midterm, long-term or what some people call you know, horizon two and horizon three innovation. And the last thing I would say is that this is a job about people and understanding the politics of where you work and influence hard, you know, overt, you know, structural influence of people who are senior in the organization, but soft influencers of people who know a lot and can help be your allies. And so I think that creates a really interesting divide between there's some people who are great at technology and they're great scientists and they're great at, they have a hundred patents to their name and they are not good at the people side of this job. And it's not that they're not going to have an amazing career, but I think when you're really trying to have an impact on the organization, this is a, a job that is about diplomacy and allies and sometimes creating, as we talked about, these networks of people, these armies of people in the organization that want you to succeed and, and really do believe that the organization needs to you know, evolve and grow and change if it wants to survive. Yeah. And when, when, you, when you go back to the challenges that you introduced in the beginning, those political and turf wars and the cultural issues and ability to act, certainly the first two are clearly people related, right? The, we need innovation leaders that indeed can build a network and, and find allies and be able to push ideas forward throughout the organization, not just kind of in their silo area, which never works for innovation. Can I, I'll jump in and say, we ask the flip side of that question too, when we do research. So not just what are the biggest obstacles, but what are the biggest enablers of success? Number one on that list is leadership support, you know, so support from business unit heads and CEOs and other senior folks. And it is so far more important 
than funding. The right level of funding is on that list of enablers, but it's like number seven or eight on the list. And number one is like, you need to have leadership support or this doesn't work. I'm curious what else is on that list now? Well, you know, just doing the top three is like, so leadership support, number one, the ability to test, learn, and iterate is number two. And I think it's just because so many organizations get bogged down in you know, making the case for why we should do something and gathering data and interviewing customers and presenting it in meetings and then presenting it in more meetings. And then how do we get fun? And, and you know, you're just, your shoelaces are tied up and you're trying to run and, and good things don't happen. So like that ability to more nimbly test, learn and iterate and have faster cycle time for new ideas is number two. And then the third thing is having the right strategy and vision for innovation and And that's a little bit nebulous, like what is the right strategy and vision? And so we tend to do qualitative interviews and talk to people about about what that means. But I I think part of it is that like a lot of companies have vision statements or mission statements that don't really say anything and don't really tell you where the organization is trying to go. You know, our employees and our customers are all human beings and we care for them, you know, and it's like, well, what? What that's it's, it looks great on painted on the the wall in the lobby, but it doesn't really tell you much about where are we trying to get this giant organization. Right. right. Yeah. When it comes to that innovation strategy, I always want to relate that back to the organizational strategy and kind of what is the organization about. And so, like a simple example for me is: Are we trying to create new to the world products, things that the people haven't seen before, or are we trying to make things better? Right. Or are we trying to make MP3 players really cool that someone wants like the iPod was or the same for our phones that changes what actions we would take and what we would pursue for innovation? Yeah. And I think part of that, like the right strategy vision is about are we applying, as I interpret it, is do we have a vision that is thinking about today and next year and five years from now, as opposed to a lot of organizations, if you ask them about what they're innovating toward, they're quite frankly innovating towards the next big trade show where they need some products to show to customers, or they're innovating towards the next Wall Street analyst call when the CEO and CFO need something new to talk about. And, you know, the the big difference between founders when it comes to vision and strategy, the big difference between founders like an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos type founder, or even here in Boston, my my friends, Helen Grainer, Colin Angle and Rodney Brooks, who started iRobot. And we just, I was just talking to Colin a little while ago, like founders have a vision of we're interested in robotics or we're interested in electric vehicles. And we can see over five or 10 years where this is going to go. And so we know what, you know, what sorts of battery chemistry are we going to need to get us there with robots? Like, how do we get the cost down so that we can't just sell robots to the military, but we can sell robot vacuum cleaners to like every consumer. And so founders often have that that vision, the longer term vision. Professional managers sometimes don't. You know, the person who gets recruited to be the business unit president or the CEO of the company sometimes just just it's not part of their makeup. And I think that can really frustrate the innovation people. Yeah. And or they expected to have that, right? That they're, again, delivering, executing on objectives and making sure we meet our quarterly expectations as a public company. For sure. Innovators are different. And I do find in organizations when it comes to leading innovators, you know, all these challenges that we've talked about, barriers that are in the way, fundamentally, most of us are wired. Most humans are wired to see a problem and to want to, to add value in some way, right? And it seems to be that it's often that we don't have enough ideas 
It's really trying to get the ideas to some place where we can take action on them. Well, unless, I mean, if it's okay to ask you a question, I feel like sometimes big organizations are like experiments with lab rats where the, you know, the 15th time you try to add value to a problem, you're put on the 15th committee and you work on a project for a year with nothing ever coming out the other end, right? And after that 15th time, you shut up and you just either leave the company or you are resigned to like, this company does not care about my ideas and my problem solving. So why do you think people work for those kinds of companies? Because people, smart people don't always leave cultures that are anti-innovation, right? Right. So personal experience, some of that is because there's people that you like and enjoy, right? There's aspects of the work that is still rewarding and, and fun. And you're part of a team that is helpful. And maybe you find some cracks that you can push things forward through. And so then the then the job becomes one of solving the puzzle. How can I push things forward when it looks like it's not possible? But indeed, what you described, I think, is the core issue, that people have ideas, they want to contribute, and they find out that there's their idea, nothing's done with the ideas, right? There's no evaluation process. And even in companies that are regarded as really innovative, just to interject here, Chad, like yeah. I remember I, was, I used to live out in San Francisco, and I would, I would visit Google occasionally. And I can remember... Like Google was so celebrated for their 20% time, right? Where all our engineers can work on whatever project they want to one day of the week. But then when you actually dug down, you found out, I remember Marissa Mayer when she was, you know, president or COO or something at Google saying like, oh yeah. And then once a week, everybody lines up outside my office and waits for a couple hours to come in and pitch to me on why their idea should see the light of day. And so Google scaling this stuff, you know, it's like, it's great to say you should have some time and work on your own projects, but then scaling and figuring out like, how do you pitch those ideas to the senior leadership and how many can senior leadership actually resource and launch? Like this stuff is really hard, even for companies that have super talented people and want to solve the, the innovation conundrum. And it breaks quickly if you don't think about those problems ahead of time. And the, the one tool that many organizations have adopted that I see break more than any others is the suggestion box, right? The, the not, not literally a box these days, but the, you know, send your ideas here. And maybe we even have a system where we can vote on the ideas and bubble up the best ones. And too often, nothing actually happens with any of those. And so people say, okay, no, no reason to participate in this. Well, the great episode of The Office, right, is where they discover the suggestion box that's been kind of like lost somewhere and they open it up and it's like all these employees who've quit or committed suicide or I forget what happened, all the employees with suggestions in the the box in that episode. But yeah, this, you know, this stuff is really, really tough. And I think companies just inadvertently send send the wrong message. I mean, that whole let's let's collect ideas, let's have an innovation portal. We see it time and time again, where what happens is you get a tsunami of ideas in the first month. And then once people see that you don't have a plan for doing anything with them, then you get no more ideas. And you have sent kind of an anti-innovation message of, we want you to give us your ideas, we're going to look at your ideas and not do anything. And sometimes people create like, they, there have been a lot of events patterned after Shark Tank as part of this whole innovation theater thing that you alluded to. Shark Tank, the investors are often mean. And the good thing about Shark Tank is that, and I've talked to entrepreneurs who've pitched on Shark Tank, so I know this is true. If they don't invest in you, you have 100,000 other, entrepreneur, uh, other investors that you can go pitch your idea to. Whereas in a company, Shark Tank, after those five executives had said, have said, Chad, I don't think this idea has potential. You can't really go anywhere else, right? right? So there's a finite number of people who can say, 
no or yes in a, in a big company. And that Shark Tank thing, I just think, can rub people the wrong way. This is certainly an area that we should explore to just kind of wrap it up now for time. You need to think through the unintended consequences ahead of time and make sure you have a way of managing uh, anything that you put in place. Scott, I appreciate all the insights here for sure. I do want to find out a little bit more about the resources you have available, especially at Innovation Leader. Tell us about that thing. Well, we created it basically because, as we've discussed, this job is really hard. And often we would see people in large companies making the same mistakes that over and over again that other people, their peers had already made, like putting up a suggestion box on the Internet or having a, you know, a Shark Tank Innovation Day sort of thing. So we describe Innovation Leader. It's kind of a, you know, it's a research company. It's a media company. Our whole job is just let's collect data case studies, examples of how big companies do this, usually how they do it right, but sometimes how they do it wrong and how things get shut down. And, you know, we often have people write articles for us after they've just left a job and they can suddenly talk really candidly about (laughs) how difficult this stuff is and how you really have to navigate the politics carefully. And so, you know, a lot of what we do is is survey-based research or interview-based research and lots of in-person events when there's not a global pandemic on, lots of virtual events if there is a global pandemic on. And, you know, we always love to have new people participating. Excellent. And the best place to find out about that is probably innovationleader.com. You got it. And we're also on Twitter. We're at InnoLead on Twitter and do a lot of posting on LinkedIn as well. And same Innovation Leaders profile for LinkedIn? Yes, you can find us pretty Easily, even though it's kind of a generic term, innovation leader, I think we now are pretty pretty well findable on Twitter, LinkedIn. We're also doing some stuff on Clubhouse if folks are on the Clubhouse app. So we should go check that out. I want to find out more as well. As listeners know, we love a good innovation quote around here. Can you tell us what you brought for us and also what that one means to you? One of my favorite, we actually made up t-shirts at our annual conference with a bunch of different great innovation quotes on them and people could choose which quote they wanted and have it silk screened on their t-shirt. And unfortunately, because I believe in democracy, my quote didn't get picked to go on the back of the t-shirt, but my quote is a John Cage quote, the experimental composer. And, And the quote is, I can't understand why people are frightened of new ideas. I'm frightened of the old ones. I just love that quote because there are so many old ideas that people take for granted that are not working that great, whether in our company or in our society. And let's worry about getting rid of the old ideas rather than being scared of the new ideas. That's my approach. That's excellent. Scott, if people want to find out more about you personally, how can they do that? I'm at Scott Kirzner on Twitter. And I think that's kind of it. That's I'm, I'm just on Twitter all day, not really doing much productive, but just tweeting things. So that's a good way to find out about me. Or if folks want to get in touch, I'm Scott at innovationleader.com. Excellent. Scott, thank you so much for all the insights. I appreciate the research that you do to help us as innovation leaders uh, do a better job with innovation as well. This was really a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, Chad. Thanks for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products that customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.